Welcome to Get World Savvy. This is a business and tech podcast on startup ecosystems around the world, the entrepreneurs innovating in global markets and predicting opportunities of the future. On Get World Savvy, we have fascinating conversations with some of the top leaders, disruptors, and creators in tech and tech-enabled businesses across industries and geographies. You'll learn about where the world is moving, growth strategies, and how that translates to your business and home market. I am your host, Ivy Shu. I previously worked in Silicon Valley and spent all of 2019 traveling to 16 emerging markets to interview tech leaders and to expand my playbook on building successful companies. I have no intention of stopping this journey and I can't wait to share all my learnings with you on this podcast. You can join the listener community based in over five continents and working in over 20 industries by going to getworldsavvy.com slash podcast. We hold weekly trainings on tangible skills that will help you scale your business and up-level your career, like digital marketing, how to partner with tech giants, moving from product management to entrepreneurship and back to product management, and developing web accessibility for your website for users with disabilities, just to name the trainings that are happening in May. You'll also get to connect and network with over 100 global leaders in tech. Welcome to episode 20. Today, I'm here with Felipe Echandi, founder of Quanto. Quanto allows small merchants and independent Latin American entrepreneurs to create their mobile-first online store to sell over social media. Think of Shopify for Latin America's social media-based e-commerce experience. Thank you so much for being here, Felipe. Thanks for the invite, Ivy. I'm excited. I'd love to know you because you're actually the first person that I'm having on this podcast that's from Central America and working on South America. So just to start, can you tell me a bit more about your background and what led you to create Quanto? Sure. Yeah, that's perfect. Quanto, that means how Quanto. much in Spanish. Uh, and it's a, it's a sort of a word game we came up with. But basically, my background is I, I collect Central American nationalities. So my mother is Nicaraguan. She had to leave due to the war in the 80s, which is something that unfortunately has happened to several countries in our region. I was born in Costa Rica, and I moved when I was a kid to Panama. So I've sort of had contact with several of the small countries in the Caribbean basin. And yeah, I decided to study law initially. Unfortunately, in our part of the world, and I think that will be relevant for our conversation, entrepreneurship and tech are not yet seen by as many people as I think would be desirable to, uh, as, as driving forces for change, like to improve the lives of people. People tend to want to go more into politics or want to go more into lawmaking or you know, policy and all that stuff, which is great like that have, to have smart people and, and driven people there. But the incentives of politics in general are complicated. And, but well, I fell into that trap and, and I studied law because I thought that was the way idealistically improved life for others. When I started practicing, I discovered law is more of a conservative force. It's like a, it's sort of like religion, you know, it, it, it serves its purpose, like to, to, to guard the trust between people, but it's not really in the cutting edge. That's where I got a little bit frustrated and I, I quit and I decided, well, I want to create something that it's aligned with my ethical views in a, in a more direct way. And that's where I, you know, I concluded like the opportunity right now to change and create new experiences for people that actually solve problems in their day to day seems to be technology and technology to solve basic things. And this is what we're seeing around the world. You know, like we're, we're seeing people that can now access the internet for the first time ever and can communicate at the marginal cost with anyone in the world. 
something that was taken for granted already in sort of more developed parts of the world it is actually getting to every human being in regions like Latin America. And that's where I started exploring. So like, what's the area where I have some knowledge where I could build upon? Uh, so my actual experience in law was around financial regulation and financial transactions in general. I realized that that is an extremely inefficient market still. There are a ton of regulatory barriers. There are many entrenched players in the different countries. Some of them are starting to transform, fortunately. However, like at least I feel it's been done too slow. And that's where we created Quantum. Two, two co-founders and, and me, uh, Jorge Garcia and Jose Ramon Varela. I, so like, what are we? <laughs> we are a platform that allows people to create an online store in a few minutes from their mobile and sell over social media. WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, they are ubiquitous here. For many people, they are actually the internet. People don't consider the internet as, as you might see it in the developed world, like, you know, Google SEO, et cetera, like a normal website. They just use WhatsApp or they use one of these messaging platforms or social media platforms. And I have a, a nice anecdote around that. I, I was giving a sort of a workshop for an indigenous population here in Panama. And I asked they, like the people that were there, they were from an indigenous community. It's called Gunayala. Gunayala is a, an indigenous community, which is basically also a paradise. Like you can come here to Panama and go to one of these 300 plus islands and, and have a great time. And I asked them, who, who of you use the internet? Who are you are internet users? And they said, like, no one really raised their hands. And then I asked, like, who, who, who uses WhatsApp? All of them, like, said, I, I am a WhatsApp user. And I asked them, like, who of who you use Facebook? They all, they all knew Facebook but they don't know what the internet is as we would know it in a sort of like, you know, more developed world context. So what, what we started thinking about, like my two co-founders and me were like, where are these opportunities to allow these people to connect and benefit from this basically global network of information with their current setup and with their current mindset? And that's where we realized, you know, like commerce will actually be a build on top of where consumers are. If consumers are in WhatsApp or in Instagram or in Facebook, that's where people will buy and sell stuff. Are there tools for these people to manage their, their businesses and their projects? The answer was no. We don't have sort of the intricate infrastructure of like Stripe plus Shopify plus Amazon plus the American mail system or, you know, like in other, in other sort of developed countries. None of that really exists and it's being sort of built around a region. Like the, the Panamanian mail, for example, is terrible. You, you just don't know when you're going to get your mail. There are no addresses, basically. Like street addresses do not exist as, as you know them in, 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 you know, in other parts of the world. We, we've started to see all these companies start to emerge to solve those different parts of day-to-day -day life. And we found GAP which we are trying to execute on, which is management of your business. You know, start your business, create your store, showcase your products and reach your customers where they are already communicating with you. So that's what we do. So just to confirm, because I have seen similar models in Southeast Asia where yeah. most users actually find the store on Instagram. Yeah. They contact the store via WhatsApp. They bank transfer the yeah. store and then hope that the item arrives right and i'm right. kind of asking how do you trust that you can just pay and the item will just arrive and in a lot of remote places in indonesia they just 
seem to not have ever thought about it not arriving. And even though I know that, you know, fraud must be a problem, it does seem that there's a certain level of trust. But based on that model, I'm not really quite sure exactly what Quanto does. How is it a separate platform that integrates with WhatsApp? What exactly is it that allows you to- So I'll walk you through. So we, you're a small merchant here in, in, in Panama, for example, and you want to sell vegetables to your house. Right now, when everyone's quarantined for COVID-19, you want to order groceries or whatever for your home. You have the option of using the marketplaces, either like sometimes like Uber Eats-like apps exist. However, they tend to be pretty expensive. They charge a very big chunk of the, a big chunk of whatever is being sold. And they are a centralized sort of experience for the consumer. You have to download the Uber Eats app or any of these other apps. And you have to basically compete for the shelf space or the virtual shelf space they have. Whereas there's this other type of interaction, which is what you mentioned in in Indonesia, which is this decentralized social media-based e-commerce experience, sort of, that we have, which is just peer-to-peer, sort of like direct contact with the seller. Either you follow them in Instagram or in Facebook, or you're in a WhatsApp group and the person is there. And, you know, like that's how people actually discover all these new products. So what we do is if you're one of these sellers, you download our app, you upload your products and your services, and you can serve your customers either integrating with Instagram by basically posting a link in your bio or tagging your your post in shoppable Instagram post and some other functionality we're developing, or in WhatsApp by just sharing links and catalogs that are actually shoppable. Because what we realized is that people were doing this in a very sort of artisanal way. They had their, you know, their PDFs or their, their artwork that was just like JPGs or like pictures that they would send around at the different groups, et cetera, but they would not be shoppable. So like the conversion rate they had would not be amazing. They would have trust issues like the one I'm mentioning, at least in most countries in the region, there was no way for people to actually get paid for whatever they were being requested for like you say, like one common interaction is bank transfers. So like you decide what you want, you have a back and forth with the seller, and then you go into your bank and you do, you know, 50 different taps, enter five passwords, you know, whatever, depending on on which platform you have, you send the bank transfer information. Sometimes it's not even instant. And in many, in many cases, it's that limits you to your city or your country. Like in Panama, we have banks that are different from the banks in Nicaragua and Costa Rica and Guatemala, and, you, and there's no way for you to actually sell globally, which also reduces the size of the market for the total addressable market you have as a, as, a, as a small seller, as a small business. Like things that like platforms like Etsy have solved for people around the world, where you actually have logistics, where you actually have payment networks, where you actually have banking connectivity like in Latin America, haven't really been solved, although we do have some of those users in these platforms. We don't have this massive you know, base of creators selling to the rest of the world. And we think that's just because the, the tools have not ad- adapted to the local experience. And that's what we're trying to change. So you create your, your store, you publish it in your Instagram, you can immediately start selling with cards or bank transfers. Like we adapt to whatever payment network you have. You can also coordinate delivery, create discount codes. And we have this roadmap of features that we're creating around the management of your business in a sort of centralized way. So we become sort of your engine and you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you're going to start a business. You just focus on whatever you sell. Makes sense. Now it's starting to sound a bit like Shopify. Yeah. Did you explain uh, kind of the differences? 
yeah, and we, what you need to think about that maybe Shopify and developed countries don't need to? Yeah, so actually, like for, for, for developed country users, I probably should have started with that. Like we, like we think we are building something like Shopify if it were started in Latin America right now with the mobile experience. And the difference between what Shopify has done and what we are doing is first, our experience is mobile first and for small merchants and independent entrepreneurs. Shopify obviously has a ton of great features, but they have many different niches. They power all the way from stores like, I don't know, JCPenney's to small merchants that sell online, but they mostly do it, although they have become responsive and you know have, have these like other mobile-based mobile solutions, they weren't born mobile first. And what we think there's still an opportunity for is to create something that is actually intuitive for a very uneducated population, uneducated, not in the derogatory way, but in, in general, just like a, a population that has never really experienced e-commerce as has been experienced in the developed world. And that's where we think we, we have an interesting edge. And the more we integrate with these experiences, the more easier it will be for, for, for merchants to start selling more. And as they decide that they can actually start, you know, quitting their formal job or transforming those, you know, informal gigs they have into actual ways of living, you know, we think we will be able to, to, to create not only a sustainable company, but hopefully a social mobility machine that will allow, you know, these people to actually benefit from. Yeah, I do want to emphasize like how important it is and how different it is to be mobile first versus desktop first. Because in a lot of these countries in Latin America, I'm sure most people do not have computers. They started with phones and sometimes may not even be smartphones and are just switching over to that. So someone that has never touched a laptop, there's a lot of functionalities and a lot of design work that goes into what it would mean to tailor to this audience and as well to the usability of being mobile first. That's really interesting. I think that was a great answer. The next question, when you were talking about how there's a lot of infrastructure that's missing, that in developing countries, there's not necessarily the greatest logistics or even payment systems or I can't even read what I wrote. I was trying to take notes. Street addresses. <laughs> you know Just the street yeah. addresses. It's exactly, crazy. street addresses. So, yeah. but right now you, you are only handling the store management part. You're still relying on third parties that yeah. are able to provide these, thing, these things. And something that I know about developing markets is that it's very common for companies to build their entire vertical stack. So becoming a super app, handling the logistics, handling payments, handling everything. It, or go like super horizontal targeting the same demographic of users in multiple different ways. Is this something that you're considering? Are you having trouble with any of the third parties? What's going on in this area? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a trade-off there. So yes, definitely we do have to rely on many already existing infrastructure providers. However, what we've realized is many of these infrastructure providers have the technical capabilities, for instance, of pushing money from one place to the other or processing cards, debit and credit cards, but their interface is the problem. Their interface is basically a B2B interface, you know, very traditional gateways with very, you know, relatively poor documentation for their APIs and, you know, whatever you, you, you want to use. And their business model is also dependent on large customers. So like, you know, a merchant processing bank, like a bank that opens you a merchant account so you can actually start accepting credit and debit cards. They normally ask for a big setup fee, monthly recurring fees, 
very, like I mentioned, like very bad sort of API documentation, et cetera, that's just not accessible for the majority of the population. So what we are starting with is we did see sort of like low-hanging fruit of creating a layer on top of these, of these providers that already have the technical capability of doing some of the parts that can create an e-commerce experience, but making it accessible with an intuitive user experience for the everyday user, for the small merchant. To answer your question on the sort of like spectrum of solutions of like super apps, Gojek in, in SEA or like Rappi here in Latin America or like Uber Eats sort of in some countries, we do think there is a sort of philosophical divide that we will see emerge. And I think there will be space for both like the centralized marketplaces, like what Amazon has done and the equivalent of the Shopify's of this part of the world where you just become the engine and you don't really have to be the centralized marketplace. You can help discovery, SEO, analytics and all that stuff, but you don't really need to own the marketplace completely because there's just different ways around discovery, the way the consumer discovers. You as a consumer can choose to go to Amazon, you know, search for stuff in Amazon or some other marketplace, or you can just interact with, with your creators in more sort of decentralized way in other ubiquitous communications platforms like Facebook, basically. So what we, we actually joke in our, our company that we see like this sort of like trillion dollar war coming between the Amazons and centralized marketplaces and their equivalents around the world with like the social media and communications platforms around the world and whatever ecosystems they enable because they, they see two different types of discovery on the consumer side. We are betting for this second part, this social media decentralized way of discovering, even though they do it on top of a platform, which is Facebook. We just don't think Facebook will solve all of these issues. We think Facebook can enable an ecosystem to allow for the creation of several very large platforms and companies that will allow to solve these different areas. Whereas taking traffic away from the consumer into centralized marketplace, maybe for basic goods or, or recurring goods might make sense. We don't think that will be the main way people will discover specialty goods or this, this sort of like sub-segment of, of items. That's just like a, a working theory. We're still discovering sort of how this will evolve. But we do see that evolution in, in the different countries in Latin America. So the Rappies and the, and the Uber Eats of the different countries are growing and they are great tools, but they are enabling a fundamentally different experience to the one social media is actually enabling. And that's where we think we can actually improve that experience as well. Definitely agree. But the thing about marketplaces and Uber and the Amazons is that they've, because they're centralized, they've done a thing like commoditizing trust. Yeah. So they handle all the frauds. They handle who the bad users are. How does that work in the decentralized realm? Yeah. Well, I guess the caveat there is it's not completely decentralized. Of course, Trust is something that we are having to actually also provide for our customers. We released a few, a few weeks ago, a way to create customer reviews so other people can, can look at what we're doing. We also released something we call social proof, which shows a new customer that comes into a store, how many people have bought in that store in the last, in the last month or so. And we've realized that consumers actually respond to these types of cues. We just feel there are different potential solutions for that trust. The trust doesn't have to be provided with a centralized marketplace. It can be provided by design for other reasons. There is a ton of tools around anti-fraud, prevent chargebacks around you know, credit card networks. We also have a way of fingerprinting devices and keep and curate basically a good user base of merchants so consumers don't feel scammed every time they, they sell. But we do feel there is a sort of psychological need of owning your, your business. 
It's sort of like what Wix and Shopify have demonstrated in other parts of the world. Your website is your space in the internet and social media has sort of like built upon that, especially Instagram. Your Instagram profile is your storefront. Like if we connect to that already existing experience that provides that ownership, we believe we will allow a ton of people to affordably live off the internet, which is something that sometimes is a bit expensive on the marketplace side. Cool. Let's scroll back a bit again when you were talking about payments and being able to push money from one place to the other yeah. and that a lot of these providers right now are very heavily B2B without really great integration and user experiences. Why is that? And when explaining that, could you also touch a bit on, I guess, micropayments, which I'm sure yeah. relates to more of the consumer side and why that's still not available? Yeah, well, I would think there are several reasons for the lack of good user experience around these providers. The first one, e-commerce is not as widespread as in the developed world. If we compare, for instance, the number of Americans that have debit and credit cards that can shop online, that's, I think it's over 90%, if I'm not mistaken. In Latin America, depending on the country, it could be as low as single digits. So cash on delivery, bank transfers, and alternative payment methods are a must for any e-commerce platform to actually develop. That has made that providers that would solve this for us, like Stripe or, or some other infrastructure providers that have allowed these types of platforms to like, scale and launch quicker in, in other countries, not to prioritize these, these parts of the world. They prioritize Europe first or like the large, very populous countries in, in, in Asia first. Of course, they're going to keep expanding and I, hopefully they will make our, our job easier to move money around. But in the meantime, there are local providers or regional providers that do exist that do provide some of what Stripe does, not perhaps in the super seamless way that Stripe does it, but that we can actually deal with. So we do have the technological capabilities of dealing and understanding their documentation, even though it's sometimes poorly presented or whatever. And we abstract that complexity from the consumer and the consumer just gets an experience that was just not possible before. The other thing is the size of the markets in Latin America, again, globally, are individually not huge, except maybe Mexico and Brazil, which are sort of the two jewels of the region, like economically, they're the two big camps when, when, when startups are starting up. However, the rest of the Latin American region is still big in conjunction. And the rise of these platforms like Uber, Airbnb, et cetera, have already forced some providers to allow to do payouts from country to country. So there's now a possibility for you to launch in one Latin American country, for example, or base your company in the US and do payouts to many different countries around the world without even having a legal presence and having to face regulatory constraints in that country because you already have providers that allow you to move that money and push it through. So global payments are starting to become easier every day. Even you see what like the solutions that Visa and MasterCard have, have enabled, like Visa Direct or MasterCard Money Send, which allow you to send money from one MasterCard or Visa to another MasterCard or Visa at very, very low transaction fees, basically. Not like a normal uh, merchant discount rate transaction where you have to pay 3, 3%, 3.5% or whatever. So I think that that trend is sufficiently strong for us to bet in building this great user experience because the money movement issue has been solved by a ton of players already and it will just keep improving. Stripe already launched in Mexico fully and Brazil, I believe, it, I believe they already launched or they're about to launch and they will just keep expanding in the region and we will have a ton of players like those that will solve this infrastructure problem that was not solved before. Do you think that 
Latin America will first go through the credit card wave over alternative payments like other emerging markets? It's, it's hard to say. I think we will have a combination. I don't think we will have a full-on Alipay, WeChat experience like China, where like one or two players will dominate everything. We, we sort of are like Latin America, uh, contrary to other parts of the world, we're stuck in a sort of unhappy medium. We're not as poor as Africa, like as many countries in Africa, not all of them, but, but we're not as affluent as developed countries. And if you see that in the banking penetration, Latin America is sort of in a weird medium. In Africa, you see the examples of M-Pesa and these mobile money providers in, in, in Kenya and other, and like Nigeria and other parts of Africa, where the bank is your telco, actually. Whereas in the US, telcos are not banks. The banks are the banks. In Latin America, we roughly have half of the population with bank accounts and formal banking relationships and the other half without. So you don't have like a dominant industry that has managed to lobby their governments to sort of relax regulations around money movement for their own benefit. Like in Africa, we feel the telcos are basically telcos plus banks. So they can actually handle double digits of GDP in transaction volume every year. If you see what Vodafone does with Safaricom in Kenya, it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, in Latin America, you do have a strong banking sector that is preserving the status quo. And you do have regulators that are strong and, and preserving sort of the traditional banking model. But you still have a big chunk of the population that is not included. So what we feel is we will have a combination of both. And these platforms have to be payment agnostic. For example, in Mexico, the Bank of Mexico has something that's called CODI, Cobro Digital, digital charge or digital collections, I guess that would be the translation, where they created a, a sort of central bank managed QR code that can be opened up for any platform. So in Mexico, very soon, and there is already pilots going, and some, some banks are already working even in production, you can actually be like a small store and have a QR code like the ones you see in India, for example. And you as a consumer from any banking app or any other third-party app, you can actually scan that QR code and you will have a real-time payment between two banks. But that will be Mexico-specific. Costa Rica, for instance, my other country, has a similar system that works based on cell phones. Panama has a very fractioned system. We, ha we have no central bank. Colombia has three or four providers. Argentina has two or three. Like it's very localized experience. And even though it's cumbersome to, to engage and deal with all of these players, we feel it's a must for, for, for a, a real e-commerce experience to, to exist. And you just have to have a roadmap and you start targeting country by country. And fortunately, the cultural way of dealing with things is similar. And that, that was one of the questions you even uh, sent me in your, in your email initially. Like is Latin America a unified region where like people sort of behave in the same way and people see it from the outside as one region or is Latin America different? We feel we are way more homogeneous than SEA, for example. Southeast Asia has countries that are, have very different cultures, very different languages. We have the same language. It's intelligible. Like we can, even though we have different accents, we can understand each other. We share the same music. We share cinema, like even sort of basically religion as well. It's an overwhelmingly Christian sort of area, although, you know, with different denominations. So I feel the homogeneity around the Latin American cultural experience helps to actually aspire to create regional platforms, sort of like what Rappi has proven in, in their building and launching in, in several parts of the region and some others that are also scaling up. We're thinking of also exploiting that, which is very exciting because we, we, do, we all in Latin America have ties with people in other neighboring countries, and, and we do see many interesting similarities around the way people communicate.
Wow. I was just listening so intently. I didn't even take any notes, but I feel uh, like I definitely have follow-up questions from here. Like now that you've explained it, I'm even more curious. You say that a lot of e-commerce stores need to be payment agnostic, which makes sense. Actually, Japan's going through this transition right now where there's literally, and same with actually in Malaysia and a lot of places in Southeast Asia where there's so many fintech players right. and qr codes that when you go pay for something there's like 20. yes, <laughs> like, yes. go pay india has anything. the same problem yeah 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 so it's really only united like with mpesa and nairobi and then china for wechat and alipay there's two right. players right? right but even then wechat and alipay are going abroad i'm seeing a lot more of them in a lot of tourist areas and different right. places but i'm not actually sure how the currency is transferred and whether they work directly with banks yeah. But in Latin America, so when you say that there are half of the people that are probably on the wealthier end who run businesses, whatever, they have credit cards and half that don't, are the ones that don't more attracted to alternative payments or are they the ones that, you know, when everyone's talking about let's bank the unbanked, are, are the banks also trying to capture this audience? Sort of. So I'll, I'll try to deconstruct your question, correct me if I'm getting it right. So what you've observed in Southeast Asia and in Asia in general is this sort of proliferation of players that creates way more complexity and actually impacts the consumer experience. And I, what came to mind was a company in India called Baratpay, which actually, once they realized that, you know, the, the, the small shop owners in India have to have, you know, five or six different QR codes, they created one QR code to rule them all, you know, like the meta QR code that is compatible with any platform. And like that sort of aggregates uh, the, the, the underlying infrastructure. I'd like to, 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 follow, to follow one of the sort of like Reddit lore rule of, rules of thumbs. I love to use Reddit. And there's this like turtles on turtles on turtles on turtles, turtles on the way down meme from Reddit. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's basically the financial infrastructure in the world is filled with intermediaries. You have the banks, credit card space, you have authorizers, the processors, the gateways, and some of them are the same company, some of them are separate, et cetera. And with this whole fintech uh, phenomenon springing up, you have a ton of providers that do little parts of the value chain around the movement of money or around the movement of information around money. And what I've come to conclude is the more complexity there is, based on unmet needs, like in Latin America, where you, you say you, you have this 50%, like what we were talking about this 50% of the population that is just not included in banks, they will use many different new solutions that are springing up. They will use neobanks, they will use you know banking wallets, which are springing up because banks have realized it's now affordable to actually have them as customers, etc. But that will create massive complexity and interoperability issues that platforms, other platforms will have to solve. So I think it's like a pendulum. You have greenfield opportunities in parts of the population that are not included, and you will have a ton of players to go after them. Some of them will die. Some of them will, will actually gain a foothold and grow. And then if, if that market dynamic specifically because of regulatory barriers or border barriers, whatever, ends up allowing for not a duopoly like Visa, MasterCard, or Alipay, WeChat in China, but something you know, more fractioned, like what's happened in Peru or what you were mentioning in Japan, et cetera, you will need to have a layer on top of that that will aggregate the experience and make it interoperable for others. And specifically from the business owner perspective, the business owner cannot afford to just be married to one provider. 
They just mm -hmm. want to sell. They want to reach as many consumers as they want. And that's where we think our role is very, very important. And we're emphasizing that as a, even like a, you know, a, a very big bet as a company. Like we are not married to a specific payment network. We are not building our quanto pay ecosystem that's a walled garden that we want to dominate. We want to be open and agnostic because that's what will bring the most information and the most usage to our platform that will then allow us to actually serve these people with other services that they also have not been served with, like credit or like some, some other things that eventually can, can actually be way more impactful than just accepting payments. That's our theory. Of course, it's a working theory. We'll see what happens. We really evaluate it, you know, based on what, what happens, but we'll see how it works. Cool. Okay. Let's move on to something that's not to do with the finance space, although we might go back to it. But I know that you spent some time in the U.S. You participated in YC. I think you did some education there and also had some work experience. Did you think that helped you start a company? What takeaways from your time in the U.S. Yeah. might have been helpful in working in for Latin America? And do you draw inspiration from other markets as well? Yes, definitely. And there are several sort of levels to that answer. The first one, one problem we have in the rest of the world, is the developing world, is that we don't know how to create big companies. We don't know how to be entrepreneurs. And we also don't know how to be investors as well. We have the know-how that has been developed in our local markets, and that's what we have to work on. Whereas you go to California or to New York or to Boston or one of these, you know, innovation hubs, you have investors that have seen platform over platform fail or succeed. You have entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs that have tried two, three times to build something. In Latin America, that is just not, not something that has happened. So the contact with innovation centers like California with the accelerators, and that's one of the values we, we mainly have drawn from, from, from participating in YC is that eye mileage, you know, like these people have already seen a ton of attempts, not only in the US, in Europe, in the rest of the world, and they have learned a lot from that experience. And we can learn from basic things of like how to run a company, how to attract people, how to hire individuals, how to create a good culture in an organization. Those are things that are applicable, I think, across the globe with the local flavor, of course. Of course, then, if we combine that with the market insight you have from your country, I think that's sort of the key to be able to build cutting-edge business, uh, modern business uh, in, in the developing world. So I completely think like being in contact with innovation centers like these that mentioned in the U.S. and other cities is an edge and it is something that can help entrepreneurs in Latin America and other parts of the developing world to scale faster and to learn from other people's experience instead of having to learn from their local counterparts, which frankly don't have that experience. So that, that's one point. You mentioned another part of your, like the last part of your question, I believe, was if we were drawing inspiration from other markets. Definitely. We, we observe Asia a lot. Like Asia is, is interesting. It has a very different culture from the one in Latin America, but many of the Asian countries had a similar situation to the one I mentioned in Latin America with very strong banking sectors, but at the same time, a big, big chunks of the population that were not included. So like we're seeing some of, like we take we try to understand as much as we can about, you know, these other markets. However, again, there are differences. That's where it becomes sort of like more an art than a science. We just see what these, these other parts of the world have evolved. How have they worked? What seem to be the incentives in the, in the systems that they have been created? 
and what can we draw from in the short term to, to drive our strategy. But that, that may be to, like we, we do that strategic work, but the day-to-day focus is solving the customer's problem and building something people love. And that is something that's very hard to do, even in the developed world. So if we focus on that, obviously with some strategy sessions and thinking about you know, broader things once in a while, we, we can create a great experience and, and hopefully you know, uh, serve a ton of people. We'll see how that works. I love that you talked about eye mileage. When I was in Kenya, I was talking to some VCs there. And my question for them was, why is there so many startups funded, started by people not from Kenya? <laughs> like the actual massive funds, they usually invest in expats. Yeah. And the VC told me that it wasn't necessarily because they wanted to invest in expats. It's true that they feel more connected because most of the VCs are expats. It was more because the locals were starting companies that were not necessarily VC style funding growth type of startups. They were starting more like restaurants or local businesses that don't necessarily yeah. need seek funding to grow. So I think the eye mileage of seeing a bigger worldview from the US where a lot of massive unicorns and very large companies, very successful companies have come from. And I'm glad that you also mentioned from Asia and from also emerging markets who are looking for something different. So you're looking for inspiration in the sense of like, this is how big we can get, this is how we should hire, this is the trajectory we should go down. But when you're looking at markets that are similar to your own, you mentioned incentive systems, like actual strategies targeting people more similar to those because the consumers are more closer than the right. consumers that US companies are targeting. Great. And what's it like in Panama right now? Why did you decide to base in Panama when you're targeting most of Latin America? Is that pretty common? Because you did mention that not Mexico really. and Brazil were the not top not market. really. We are Central Americans. This this is the part of of the world we know the best. And it was probably an irrational decision. I will be honest. Central America is the least developed part of Latin America, I would, I would say. Panama and Costa Rica have very good human development metrics. They are sort of outliers in the Caribbean basin. But still, the scale they have for technology companies is just not great. You know, Panama as a country is only 4 million people. Costa Rica as a country is 5 million people. Brazil is just huge. Mexico is just huge compared to this. However, how we've seen this experience is these countries are good testing grounds to launch products. Even though they are small, they are very diverse. Diverse in the, in the Latin American context. They have significant indigenous populations. They have, because they're small, they have more immigration, internal, like regional immigration than other countries. Like if you compare the immigration Colombia, a larger country has versus Panama, Panama has way more immigrants per capita than Colombia. So the, the, the society ends up becoming a little bit more, more of a sample of the region, I think. At least that's our, our, our working hypothesis. And also these countries because they are the least developed it's where we can leapfrog the fastest we think in the consumer experience so if we manage to build something that solves the trust issue around the the sale of goods and services via e-commerce for example in panama it's something that we think can be ready to launch mexico or launch colombia or launch you know a larger country which we're constantly doing some tests that are maybe not scalable in the beginning but we're focusing on the caribbean basin first and then scaling up to these, these other countries. Like you, like to answer your question, this is not the normal route people take. People normally start a company in Mexico or start a company in Colombia or start a company in Brazil, maybe Argentina, depending on where they are in their crazy economic cycles. So that is what has traditionally happened 
and they tended to create a solution that is catered to Mexico alone, and then they just tried to replicate everything. Sort of like what Uber has done. Like Uber launched in the US, they launched all around the world, but you know, I still struggle with some UX issues around Uber, given that we don't have addresses, street addresses. It's just like, we do have geolocation, but we don't have street addresses, so it's really complicated. We feel that building something from the ground up, like a grassroots sort of like, from the least developed parts of the region upwards, might give us a leg up into creating a 10x better experience for a small merchant. That and we just know this part of the, of the, of the region better and felt this was where we, we could launch the fastest initially. But we'll see, we'll see if we were right or wrong. <laughs> Amazing. So I'm really glad that you mentioned about the diverse characteristics around indigenous cultures to Latin America and you mentioned something else, not just indigenous cultures. Oh, immigration and how the economy cycles work in Latin America are very different than globally. So what else do you have to pay attention to and how can you mitigate those risks for your company? That's a great question. The, the economic cycles one is a big question. Which other country in Latin America will become another Venezuela? Who knows? <laughs> we have these wild political swings in the region that, you know, come, you know, left and right. But we do feel that the Caribbean basin, maybe with the exception of Nicaragua and Haiti, which are very different cases. Like Haiti specifically has a very different culture because it's a former French colony. Nicaragua is just a very turmoiled country, unfortunately. But there, there seems to be sort of a, a group of economies that have started to strengthen their institutions in some way. So that, like, at least a, a part of that I like a lot, actually, is it's called the Pacific Alliance. So it's a section of Latin America that includes Mexico, Chile, Colombia, Peru, and some countries in Central America are observers, uh, members. And these are countries that are not looking for a full-blown European Union integration. Let's have a supranational state and supra Latin American central bank, but let's just open up our markets and let's start opening up our service economies as well. They tend to be more or less market aligned with their turmoils, like Mexico has uh, driven uh, a bit to the left with their current government sort of a more populist leftist regime. However, Mexican institutions seem to be, at least so far, stronger than like Venezuelan institutions prove to be. So we do think like the regional market will become more and more integrated and economic cycles, we just have to hope they can be handled. You know, this coronavirus thing just like took everyone by surprise and now we don't know what to do, but, but they present new opportunities. Like for instance, the fact that people are now stuck at home in the region is driving a massive amount of people to digitize really fast. So companies that, that are in our sector actually are being able to, to serve a ton of people that wouldn't really consider being your customer before. So it, it's not all bad news. Also with the economic cycle changes, you know, like the, the problem with Venezuela that, you know, all the capital controls and the, and the crazy currency inflation, et cetera, that has allowed many different startups emerge that are using alternative payment networks and rails like crypto to to enable Venezuelans to become offshore financial consumers and, and escape sort of their unfortunate situation in, in their local economy. So every, every sort of dislocation seems to create an opportunity that can be filled with a, with a business opportunity or a solution. And, and we think that this e-commerce thing is just extremely strong and hopefully these dislocations won't affect that, ma that macro trend. So that's why we decided to bet on that direction. But we'll see. That's what you say after every question. We'll yeah, see. I mean, like, <laughs> we'll see what uh, happens, especially right now during this time, right? Yeah. Okay. That was actually my last question, but I do have a final round quick fire question. Yeah. I actually want to ask, and you're the first person that I'm asking this. What do you think 
other markets, whether developed or developing, maybe you know Silicon Valley a little bit better, what can they learn from Latin America or what you're doing? What strategies, inspiration yeah. can they take to make their businesses better? Well, this will be very specific to our, for the problem we're solving, okay. but we feel sort of like what has happened from China, Asia has started driving some of the user experiences of the developed world now. Like we're seeing American companies and European companies learn, like sort of like the interaction you see with Loom now, like that was like imported from China, you know, like, and now we're seeing TikTok, you know, like start taking the world by storm. We feel the developed world, like the developed world will become more similar to the developing world in the sense that it will be more mobile. It will be more mobile first as well. People in the developed world will continue to use their laptops, but already use their phones more than their laptops. I, that might be something that is not seen as an Amazon killer right now, or like as a serious competitor to Amazon or a serious alternative to Amazon. But I think we will see social media, like decentralized commerce, stake the developed world by storm. You know, it would be great for American companies to look at what's happening in our part of the world, because we, we sort of are in the future in that, in that regard, because the mobile experience is just first. In the US and in Europe, it's not, you know, it's not perceived as first by everyone. So I think that that is something that, that will be interesting to observe. Right. Very awesome. specific, okay. I get in my vertical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's really great. That's really great. Thank you so much, Felipe, for taking this time to talk about Latin America. I'm so excited for this podcast to go out. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ivy. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation.